good to be back. One thing that we forgot to mention in the announcements is that this is the first Sunday of our school supply drive. We're partnering with City Without Orphans to help get the necessary school supplies for children in foster care in our city. We believe that this is something that Jesus cares about, and so it is something that we care about. The supplies that are needed are backpacks, notebooks, pencils, erasers, highlighters, binders, and tabbed dividers. And so this Sunday and the next, you can bring those supplies back here to Prodigal so that we can get them into the hands of some great kids for a brand new school year. All right, now, the finale of our summer mixtape series. Uh, have you ever been a part of a cult? It's a strange question to begin a sermon. And when I think of the word cult, there are several things that kind of are conjured up in my mind. Uh, brainwashing, dictator-like leadership, no room for questions, a separation from those on the outside. Now, I have never been a part of a cult, though there have been times I have seen churches act like one. Uh, have you ever known somebody, maybe your friends, they start going to a certain church, and now all of a sudden, there's no time for their old friends. Uh, the only friends that they have attend this new church that they're a part of. And it seems like their whole life revolves around that church. Now, I am saying this as a pastor. Our lives should never revolve around a church. Our lives should revolve around Jesus. And Jesus was all about hanging out with people who didn't go to church. Now, there is a danger in coming to church. The danger is that you begin to feel like you're in, and that inevitably means that they're out. And we begin to categorize people. Sometimes we do this on our own. It's kind of like a, like a spiritual snobbery. And sometimes this is modeled and encouraged from the pulpit. The pastor gets on the stage and he's got his microphone or she's got her microphone and they rail about how bad they are, those people are, and how good we are. They use chapter and verse to describe how wrong they are and how right we are. And the church grows larger and larger because there is this comfort and security in being right. There's comfort in being in and safe. And so the cycle begins again. We go to this church, we slowly cut out the relationships with people who don't go to this church, and we are told every Sunday how right we are and how wrong they are, and we begin to see others through this suspicious lens. We begin to see people as distractions to be ignored, or worse, enemies to be defeated. And Jesus calls us to reject this cycle. This is clearly seen, and maybe even best seen in the scriptures, with the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 10. Now, Acts chapter 10 through 11.8 is the longest single narrative in a book that is full of narratives. Okay? This principle of proportion. This is an important story. In this story, God broke into Peter's comfortable life to thrust him out of the boundaries of Israel. Peter was raised with the Jewish mindset. And it's important to realize that in the Jewish mindset, there were only three classes of people. There were Jews, okay, any Israelite. You could not become a real Jew other than by birth, okay? It was your tribe, those are the Jews. The second way would be proselytes. They were non-Jewish people who had adopted the Jewish religion and had gone through the necessary initiation ceremonies of circumcision and baptism. 
And then three, the third category, Gentiles, everyone else. People who are not initiated into the Jewish religion and therefore pagan. Now, among these, however, were people called God-fearers. They may have worshipped God and prayed, but they had not been initiated in the Jewish religion yet, and so they were not proselytes. This was the Jewish worldview, and in many ways, it was the worldview of the Old Testament. But God is about to change Peter's worldview in a drastic way. Our story starts. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angels who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. A centurion is a middle officer in the Roman army. He commanded about a hundred soldiers. And this particular centurion is stationed in Caesarea, which is a pretty nice posting for the Roman Empire. He, he seems to be favored. And he is not Jewish, and he is not a proselyte. He is a God-fearer, a Gentile. And just the fact that God would give a vision to a Roman soldier, and in that vision, the angel says that his prayers and gifts to the poor are an offering to God. This is a radical and scandalous statement in the first century Jewish world. And Cornelius sends men to fetch Peter. Now, meanwhile, Peter is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner in Joppa. And about lunch, Peter goes on top of the roof to pray. He became hungry, and then the Bible says that he fell into a trance. Perhaps he fell asleep, perhaps it was a dream or a vision, but he saw, in verse 11, heaven opened up and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's like, no way. Jewish law explicitly states that I'm not supposed to eat those kinds of animals. I've never eaten them in my life, and I'm certainly not going to start right now. Those animals are unclean. Then the voice says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happens three times. And I think that one of the reasons that God chose Peter was because he was so darn stubborn. It took three times. You see, in the early church, they had a really difficult time believing that anybody other than the Jewish people could be saved. It wasn't that the Jews just couldn't eat certain types of food. There was a litany of foods that Jews couldn't eat. And over time, food became a religious symbol or a religious icon for the Jewish people. And it was a way of knowing who's in and who's out. All of a sudden, the doorbell rings. Who's there? 
Well, it's the servants of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, the pagan, the Gentile. Verse 19, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. The Jewish prohibition on certain kinds of food was reinforced by the Jewish prohibition of eating with non-Jews. As a Jew, you couldn't even eat with a Gentile. And now there's three Gentiles at the door, knocking, wanting to speak with Peter. Now, as a Jew, remember, you can't eat with them, okay? That's how it works with religion. These laws against certain foods eventually became laws against certain people. That's not the way of Jesus. That inevitably leads to prejudice. Prejudice, prejudging a person or a people. And when it comes to our own prejudging, here's what we do so often. We back up our prejudices by finding out just enough facts to support our case and then conveniently ignoring all the rest. And the first century Jews and Gentiles did the same exact thing. Many first century Jews could tell all kinds of stories of the wicked things that Gentiles do. And then they used that fear to control the narrative and to reinforce the status quo. One of the reasons that some of the Jews gave for not going into houses of Gentiles and eating with them was that the houses were polluted because the Gentiles forced their women to have abortions and then put the dead fetuses down in the drains or under the floorboards. So the Jews would never even walk into a Gentile's house. In the same way, some of the Gentiles were taught that the Jews were stuck up, uh, unsocial, because they wouldn't eat pork, which was the cheapest of meats back then. And because they insisted on taking every Saturday off work, the Jews were lazy. They took every Saturday off because of the Sabbath. It is safe to say that there were some prejudiced inclinations between Jews and Gentiles 2,000 years ago. And from the Jewish perspective, this wasn't just a matter of not eating with Gentiles. This was something that their scriptures taught them. Their Bible, okay, our Old Testament, gave them guidance of being separate from Gentiles. But then the early Christians began to understand something, that in light of Jesus, the law was to be seen as something for a particular time and for a particular purpose. So, that means there are parts of the Bible, God's Word, that had certain laws, certain prohibitions. And then later on in the Bible, later on in the story, those same things are actually encouraged. And if you put those scriptures next to each other, if you read them next to each other, you would think that the Bible is schizophrenic. Two opposing things cannot both be true. So are you saying that part of the Bible says to do one thing, but then later on it tells you to do something else? Isn't that contradicting itself? Let me put it this way. Imagine a mother whose child is on the other side of the street, about ready to cross a busy road. And so she yells urgently, stay still, don't move. And then a minute later, when the traffic clears up, she shouts, walk across, hurry. This mom, has not contradicted herself. The initial command 
was the right one for the time. Indeed, it is because she wanted the child to walk across the street that she told him to stand still for a moment. Because if he had not, he would not have made it across eventually. That is the kind of shift that is happening for Peter with this vision on the rooftop. This is the shift that we find hints at in the Old Testament, but with Jesus, we turn a corner. We see that it was never about the laws themselves. It was always about people. Now, God had already been preparing Peter to think differently. Samaritans were half Jews, half Gentile. And before this encounter on the rooftop, Peter checks out what God is up to in Samaria. And there are Samaritan believers that God is on the move. And then we see at the end of Acts 9 that in Joppa, Peter is staying at someone's house, Simon the Tanner. A tanner is not someone who just lays out in a tanning booth all the time. No, it's someone who tans the hides of dead animals. Now, remember Jewish law, right? You don't go near dead animals. That is a big no-no. That's worse than eating with Gentiles. And so here's Peter staying at the house of someone who works with dead animals. So God is already breaking down some of the religious rules that are hindering Peter's worldview. Perhaps God, too, has begun to break down some of the religious rules in your own life and in your own worldview. We meet someone that we were always taught was the bad guy. We meet someone who is one of them. And they seem to be like nothing that we were told. Now you can reject them in your life because they threaten how you see the world. Or perhaps, just perhaps, they are three men from Caesarea sent by God to open up your world. This is difficult stuff for us. I venture to say that it's almost impossible to change your worldview. In my experience, there are three things in life that can change someone's worldview, how they see things. One, suffering. Two, being in close relationship with the enemy or the other. And then three, divine intervention. And with the Apostle Peter, he gets all three in Acts chapter 10. Think about it. You know this is true. You can't argue someone into a bigger worldview. There are too many things for someone to unlearn. Too many security guards of the mind that are there to protect the worldview that you've been given. And perhaps the most powerful of these guards is negativity bias. Here's how this works. We start with a built-in negativity bias. It has been imprinted on the human race. And that negativity bias, it's good for survival, okay? We humans, as a race, we have this, and we've always had it for thousands and thousands of years. And it's helpful. Picture it this way. You and I and some friends are on a hiking trip. And there are two kinds of mistakes I can make. I hear a rustling of leaves and branches in the bushes. What is it? I think it's a bear in the bushes. And so I scream and holler and yell and tell everyone, run, a North American grizzly bear is in the bushes. But it was a mistake. It was actually just a tiny squirrel. I made a mistake and then the, the consequences of that mistake is that everyone kind of makes fun of me and says, you thought that that was a grizzly, silly John. 
and then we just move on. The consequence of my mistake was a little bit of embarrassment. But if I make the reverse mistake, there's something rustling in the bushes. It's got to be a squirrel. Come on over here, guys. Let's check out the squirrel. It's, a, it's harmless. But in the bushes is an actual North American grizzly bear. I have made another mistake. And it too has a consequence. My death. So over time, we have evolved with this negativity bias. We don't call it that. We say, better safe than sorry. But what happens is, is we take that negativity bias into too many areas of our lives. We use it on people and we incorporate it into our religion and into our religious views. I don't know you, you're from another tribe. Can I trust you? I doubt it. I'm gonna shoot first and ask questions later. I'm gonna be skeptical of you because it's good for survival. And our, negative, our negativity bias might be good for humans to survive, but it is not good for humans to thrive. For that, we need love. And with love, we can overcome our negativity bias. Love moves us beyond survival to thrival. We lay our lives down and take the risk of loving our real or even potential enemies. And in the process, we might affect them at the same time. And in so doing, we are bringing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And so, just like the apostle Peter, Here's how negativity bias could be sabotaging you from loving those around you. Check out this graph. First, there's negative thinking, which leads to suspicion and judgment. I don't know if I can trust that person. You know that person isn't very, or I wish they were more. And you know what? People who are suspicious and judgmental are not very pleasant to be around, and so it creates relational distance. So two things will happen. You're pushing others away because of your negativity bias. You don't trust them, you judge them. But then they'll push you away too because actually they don't really wanna be around you. And what will that do? Well, then that will then lead to confirmation and reinforcement. I knew it. They can't be trusted. They are a bad person. And all of this just confirms our negative thinking and the cycle continues. We're not being the loving people God has called us to be. And Jesus calls us out of negative thinking and moves us into love. This is something that Christians haven't been particularly great at. Here's one way we can see this in our own lives. When we sense a hint of glee in ourselves at the sight of one of them falling, failing, or being defeated. A telltale sign of this kind of subtle enjoyment is when someone mutters beneath their breath, I'm sure glad I'm not one of them, or see, we're right after all. There's a strange sense of vengeful satisfaction when we're proven right. A certain sense of security that comes at the expense of someone outside of our group, outside of our tribe. I now feel more secure in my own convictions, in my own beliefs, and place in life because of the other side's failure. I'm feeling good about it. This is profoundly non-Christian. All of this perverse enjoyment is a sure sign that we've been in-grouping. And in Acts chapter 10, 
God is pushing and shoving Peter to go beyond his religious boundaries. And there's hope for us. Because there's hope for Peter. He's beginning to get it. He then invites these non-Jewish guys in for the night. Normally a Jew would say, well, it's nice to meet you. There's a nice hotel just down the street. But not Peter. No, God's working on him. He invites them in. He's beginning to think less and less about what people think about him and more about how God thinks about them. And so the next day he goes with these Gentiles to the house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. And once he enters the house, there's a large group of Gentiles, a large group of the other, the bad guys. And Peter says, you are all aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or even visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. He says uh, that it's against our law for a Jew to associate or even visit a Gentile. Pete's breaking the law. He publicly admitted to the fact. But Peter knew that God changed the rules. In a few short sentences, this brash disciple from Galilee, now a respected apostle from Jerusalem, would sweep away centuries of religious and racial prejudice. And because of this story, the message of Jesus went beyond the Jewish walls and poured out all over this world. No longer was Jesus only a Jewish Messiah. He is the Lord of all nations. And if you are a Christian and you are not from a Jewish heritage, this very story played a role in saving your soul. Because here we see God intervening to expand the apostles' worldview to include people that were not from his tribe. Part of our journey as followers of Jesus is to have a worldview that excludes less and less and includes more and more. May it be so. Jesus, expand our worldview, grow it, give us dreams, visions, and opportunities that we can see as Gentiles knocking on our door, sent by you to expand our worldview. God, help us to include in Jesus' name, amen. We wanna thank you so much for joining us here online at Prodigal Church Fresno. Next week, we begin a brand new sermon series called Church Words. Words like atonement, sanctification, salvation. What do they mean? Where do we get them? What does the Bible say? We can't wait to explore those together. Next week is also Baptism Sunday. So we can't wait to celebrate the new life we have in Christ. We hope you have an amazing week. Grace and peace.